Oh, good luck. Um, okay, back to Mont Blanc. A desert. <laughs> My pronunciation was too bad for you to hear it as Japanese, but you did. You're still a beginner, so yeah. you can still interpret that. Yeah, Zen mind, beginner's mind. How's that? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Good comeback. All right. Um, people whose notes aren't in yet should um, their notes should be thinking about getting in. <laughs> their notes. You don't have to think about it. Just your notes. Did yeah. You, did you email back when you got them or not? Um, no, I didn't. Okay. Um, no, I got yours. All right. Cool. Plus sure. executive summary. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so we were really deeply into Mont Blanc. You think we weren't, but we were. Um, so just uh, we're <laughs> we were at line two. I mean, it was amazing. Um, if this were a poem by Ezra Pound, that would be it. Um, and in a way, it is a poem by Ezra Pound. That's one of the things that we'll think about and talk about uh, today. Um, in particular, it's in a station at the metro, except it's not a station and it's not a metro. Um, but that's kind of trivial. That's not really that important, that difference. Um, okay, so what we were puzzling over, um, I'm going to say we were puzzling over it, even though you guys weren't really puzzling over it, but what we were puzzling over was um, what it means for things to flow. Um, and I think that uh, the Heraclitian aphorism, Panta Rei, everything flows, page 866, um, Panta Rei, or everything flows, um, is in Shelley's mind. Shelley was uh, the first translator into English of Plato's dialogue, The Symposium. Um, Shelley was uh, deeply... Um, into Greek literature and his, um, you've probably heard of, if you haven't read, um, Prometheus Unbound, which is Shelley's uh, reconstruction in his own mind, that is uh, rewriting or writing of a lost Greek play uh, um, by Aeschylus. Um, and um, so Shelley probably does have Heraclitus in mind here. Um, and the idea that everything flows, why is that a famous sentence in philosophy? Why, besides the fact that it's short, there are other short sentences. The second shortest sentence in philosophy, famous sentence in philosophy is cogito ergo sum. Is that what you were about to say? No, I was not. I was going to answer your question. Okay, why? Yes. It's because nothing in life is static. Nothing in the physical world is static. If there's one thing this world is good at, it's breaking things down until they no longer exist. Yes, exactly. It's what um, Emerson calls the most unhandsome part of our condition is the evanescence or lucubricity of things, that things are always vanishing. Um, that's what uh, the wonderful 20th century comic poet Phyllis McGinley um, says, everything always ups and goes. Um, that's life. Things are always upping and going. Um, even diamonds aren't forever. Um, that's Heraclitus's idea that nothing lasts, everything changes, everything flows. Um, so here is the everlasting universe of things which doesn't seem to flow, 
And then in the in as soon as you get over the enjambment, remember what enjambment is, folks, as we politicians say. There's some folks who don't know what enjambment is, but you folks know what it is, right? What's enjambment? Yeah. When the line ends in the middle of the clause. Yeah, when it steps over, when you have to step over to the next line. Um, and again, the thing about poetry is line endings matter in a way that they don't in prose. Um, they matter because um, we register in poetry the fact that a line is ending. That's not um, a fact of grammar. It's not a fact of syntax. It's not a fact of meaning. But it's a fact of the poem. Um, poems are almost definable as having always having ragged right-hand margins. You don't write justify a poem. And the raggedness of that right-hand margin is a raggedness which basically says, here, this line ending matters. How do poems make line endings matter? They have from the beginning of time. They make line endings matter by rhyming at the end of the line, or by um, concluding some metrical contract at the end of the line, so that you get iambic pentameter, you get to the end of the line, and you have an iambic pentameter line, or a hexameter line, or whatever it is. Um, line endings and word endings are almost always, with the, 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 the um, exceptions to this rule, is probably about one in a 100,000 line endings are always word endings. That's not true in prose. Um, there's no reason for it to be true in prose. So that there is some part of our interpretive module that is registering a line ending when we read poetry um, as a different kind of ending from a sentence ending or a phrase ending or a paragraph ending um, or any other sort of ending. Um, and yet it's there. And what that means is there's, there's a slight syncopation at the ending of a line that we register in poetry that we don't in prose. And that slight syncopation makes possible effects like a declaration of the subject, the everlasting universe of things. Pause. Got it. That's what the subject of this poem is about or at least of the first sentence of the poem or maybe the first stanza of the poem. The everlasting universe of things and then after that slight syncopated pause, surprising word flows, things, flows, a kind of opposition there. Why does the everlasting universe of things flows? Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think he's not exactly describing what I said, because he says flows through the mind. Yeah. His answer is that everything flows because we're incapable of having constant perception. Mm -hmm. Our perception of them changes. Okay. It seems like that's what he's saying. Okay. So, but that might be what Heraclitus is saying also, or that at least might be why Heraclitus um, is, feels so important to people. That is that it's our experience of the universe that it all flows, that nothing lasts. Um, is it really true that nothing lasts? Well, it depends what kind of um, theory of physics that you have whether you believe in that time is real or only a subjective illusion. Um, physicists now tend to say that time is only a subjective illusion. Um, unfortunately, that means so is death. Um, you still die, but um, from the point of view of the universe, nothing's happening. Um, but from the point of view of the mind, um, everything flows. So 
that's a question rather than um, the question is how important is the distinction? Is there a distinction here from Heraclitus or not? Um, okay, so but just notice that what happens between the first and the second sentence or the first and the second line is something like what it describes. Bang! Everlasting universe of things. There it is in front of you. Line of poetry. That's what it's about. And then what happens when you move onward, go with the flow of the poem, is that that very thing starts flowing, flows through the mind, and rolls its rapid waves. Well, flows through the mind, okay, that sounds like something the mind makes it do, as you say, um, that it's something to do with human perception, that perception is constantly changing, um, that we don't have the same perception two microseconds in a row. Um, our perception is always changing. Our perception of the world is always changing. And so that makes sense. Just look at something and it will flow. That's what happens, is that everything flows. But what about the word rolls? Rolls, it's rapid waves. What's the difference between flows and rolls? Just in the feel of the meaning of those words. Yeah. Roll is more active. Flow yeah. is, is pretty passive. You know, a, a river flows and ocean rolls. Right, exactly. Rolls feels like it's the universe of things that's doing the rolling, especially when you get that possessive. Rolls its rapid waves, as though the mind is not what's causing the universe to flow, but as though the universe is the thing that's pressing through the mind and rolling its waves and making the mind perceive it. So now the universe becomes more dynamic. And what I just want to say generally as we go through this poem, that what the first two lines announce is what's going to be going on through the poem entirely, which is a kind of um, back and forth between who is in charge of reality, the mind or the universe. Which is affecting which? Which is primary and which is secondary? That's what this poem, through its five parts, is going to be about. And there's going to be a back and forth in a kind of um, um, meditation and thinking through, in the same way with that Wordsworth thinks stuff through, and that Frost thinks stuff through, Shelley is going to think stuff through about the relation of the mind to truth breaking in with all that stuff about the ice storm. This is also a poem about ice and about truth and about what the mind will and can do to and with ice and truth. Um, ben? Oh, I just want to say, I think role, the different, another difference between role and flow is that flow is a word about change, but role is almost like a self-inversion. It's yeah. something becoming the opposite of what it was. Okay, good. Um, rolls its rapid waves. Um, so the waves are constantly changing, going up and down. That's what waves do, kind of like stresses in meter. Um, rapidly, because the universe is in control. So both are in some sense being compared to an ocean or to a river. Um, the river here being, in fact, the um, River Arve. Um, so the River Arve has its source 
on in the glaciers on the top of Mont Blanc. Um, they roll down a ravine, or they or the the waters flow down a ravine from the top of Mont Blanc down a ravine, eventually into Lake Geneva. Um, so there's a geographical picture here, and remember he's writing this right there where the geography is. Um, he has, and if you're looking for a paper topic, low. Um, he has in mind another poem of Wordsworth's, um, a poem nearly as great as the Intimations Ode, and um, a poem that our reading of the Intimations Ode should make somewhat um, uh, interesting to you, and should give you, a, and our reading of the Intimations Ode should give you a leg up on it. The poem called Tintern Abbey. Um, it's actually, it's known as Tintern Abbey. It's actually called Lines Written a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey Upon a Tour of the Y. Um, in July 1898. Um, but uh, Shelley explicitly has the poem Tintern Abbey. He refers to the poem Tintern Abbey in the course of this. So um, if you want to look at what Wordsworth does in Tintern Abbey and what Shelley is doing um, here, that could be something um, if you're desperate to, to find a paper topic. That's one. Um, so um, here is this river. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves. Now dark, that is, the waves are now dark. Now glittering, now reflecting gloom. Reflecting gloom from what? The mind, as though the mind is a dark place, a cave, a ravine. And the universe of things comes through it, sometimes dark with its own darkness. We think of the universe as dark as we look at the night sky. Sometimes glittering, reflecting with stars or with starlight or with sunlight on the waters. Waters on a starry night, after all, are? Anyone remember? What is it? Beautiful and fair. Such a great line, right? Um, almost as good as pygmy size. Um, but no, it is a good line. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. Um, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendor. So reflecting back brightness into the mind that the universe of things flows through. Where from secret things, so that's where all this is happening, excuse me, where from secret springs, the source of human thought its tribute brings of waters. It's a complicated simile here. I mean, it's not complicated as in it's really hard to figure out whether there's a simile here. It's complicated in the sense of um, um, picturing how carefully Shelley is drawing a comparison between the landscape around him and the mind that this is a similitude for. So the idea is the universe is like a river flowing through the mind, but in that river there is a tributary to that river, there is a tributary, and that tributary is, um, has its source in the mind itself. So here's this huge river flowing through the mind, the universe of things rolling its rapid waves, those waves are sometimes dark, sometimes glittering, sometimes reflecting gloom, sometimes lending splendor. Where is all this happening? In that place where from secret springs the source of human thought its tribute brings of waters. So human thought, or somehow deep within the human mind, 
there are waters that are combining with the waters of the universe of things. And that's what's occurring in the mind. If you think about it, it's a nice description of the relation of perception to thought. We see things in the world, but we think about those things. What goes on in our minds is some combination of the constant flood of sensation that life is and our own kind of what Freud will call pre-conscious commentary on that flood of sensation. Just all the stuff that we're knowing. If, you, if you're reading or have read Daniel Canahan's new book, Thinking Fast and Slow, um, thinking fast is what he calls system one. It's what our minds are doing almost automatically um, in assessing the flood of sensation without our even thinking consciously about it. But sometimes um, we do have to think consciously about it. And then um, our minds will say, pay attention to this. And then in paying attention to it, um, we affect it a little bit. So there's some, what it means to be conscious, what it means to have a mind, what it means to be aware is to have this flood of experience coming at you. And then also your own contribution, the word tribute or tributary, contributes to that flood of experience. So the source of human thought, its tribute brings of waters, it moves with a sound but half its own. Or what does that with attach to? So just we'll just finish this sentence. Now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, those are the waves. Now lending splendor. Where, you ask? I answer, where from secret springs the source of human thought its tribute brings of waters with a sound but half its own. So what has a sound but half its own? What is the with attaching to there? Let's finish the sentence and then go back to that question. With a sound but half its own, such as a feeble brook will oft assume in the wild woods among the mountains lone where waterfalls around it leap forever, where woods and winds contend and a vast river over its rocks ceaselessly bursts and raves. Okay, so, the source of human thought, its tribute brings of waters, comma, dash. We don't do that anymore. Commas followed by dashes. We, we have to do one or the other. Try, try typing Mont Blanc into Word, and you'll get the disgusting squiggly green line under the comma dash. Um, but, and, or and, what that comma dash means is, that it's not perfectly clear what the width is attaching to. So where do you want to attach it? To human thoughts. That makes more sense to me. The other way around doesn't seem to make sense. Okay, so the source of human thought, its tribute brings of waters, and the source of human thought does br brings its tribute of waters with a sound but half its own. I'd bring, I'd put it after tribute brings. Human thought, its tribute brings with a sound but half its own. Okay. Yeah, so I think you guys are agreeing. Yeah. I mean, more or less agreeing. The, the big distinction is um, which has a sound but half its own, the everlasting universe of things or the source of human thought. There are two rivers, let's say. One is a tributary to the other. But which one um, is, has a sound but half its own? Yeah, Maya. I would say it's the universe of things because the universe of things is going through the mind 
and the thing with sound half its own is going is like a brook going through um, places that are very different, mm -hmm. or like a feeble brook through wild places. So, oh. if you have the waters of the mind, then it should be the same as the mind. Okay, good. So what we could say, I know we're just going dizzyingly fast. Um, we are rolling our rapid waves at an unprecedented rate. Um, but what we could say is the big distinction, and maybe the, maybe the way of, of um, describing the two possibilities, um, the, the Ben Justy possibility on one hand and the Maya possibility on the other hand, um, is that um, one says that um, the stream that has a sound, they're, they're, both, they're both streams, they're both, they're both rivers. The idea that the source of human thought, source is what streams or brooks or rivers have, um, and if, they're, if they bring a tribute of waters, then they're tributaries, so they're streams. Um, just as the Missouri is a tributary to the Mississippi. Um, so on the one hand, it might be that the river of the universe moves with a sound but half its own through this landscape. Or it might be that the um, brook or, let's say, stream of human thought moves with a sound but half its own through the landscape. We'll notice that the word half, in a sense, um, both solves and intensifies the question. If it's half, then the other half comes from the other. Um, except it doesn't quite because there's echoing and waterfalls and things like that. So we could say there are two possible pictures here. One is that the universe goes through the mind, and as it goes through the mind, it's going through a dark cavern where there are all sorts of things happening, where, there's a, where there are wild woods, lone mountains, waterfalls, woods and rocks contend, and a vast river ceaselessly bursts and raves over its own rocks. And the universe of things goes into this landscape, which is the landscape of the human mind. That the, that the universe of things is just like, oh yeah, things, iPhone, cup, computer, Japanese book, um, just triviality. But then there's the mind through which all these little things that surround us in this classroom in Waltham, Massachusetts is going through. And the mind, that's the huge, tremendous, dark, deep landscape through which just the trash of empirical experience is flowing through like a river. Or it could be that the universe so fills our minds with its waterfalls and mountains and winds and rocks and rivers that the only part that we contribute is just a little stream of thought that goes through the tremendous cavern of perception which is imposed upon us by the gigantic cavern of the universe brought into our minds. Do people know the Dickinson poem that begins, the brain is wider than the sky? Um, fantastic, unexpected first line. I think she's actually thinking of Mont Blanc. Um, but just, what does that mean, the brain is wider than the sky? Um, well, what it means is that um, you look at the sky 
but the whole thing is funneled into your brain. You can see the whole of the sky, and it has room for more than the sky. It also has room for you, the person she's looking at. Um, one will contain the other with ease, she says, and you beside. The brain is deeper than the sea, she goes on. Um, for hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb as sponges, buckets do. And she finishes, the brain is just the weight of God. For if you hold them, I forget what it is, how you, how you compare them, but um, uh, hold them side to side, um, and they will differ, as if they do, a syllable from sound. Um, that's the only difference between them, is the brain will have meaning. The brain will be able to say a syllable, whereas God is just a sound. Um, if they differ, it's because the brain actually has meaning. So the mind that that so the the distinction here is: does the mind perceive the universe, and therefore does the entire does the mind somehow embrace? Is the mind wider than the universe, or does the universe overwhelm the mind? and become the gigantic cavern that takes possession of the mind so that all that's yours is this tiny, feeble brook within the universe that's taken possession of you. Ben, then, I would say, well. I mean, I think the best way that I can, I can interpret which of those he means is to look at the actual structure of the poem. Which, uh -huh. which of those two elements is dominant in the poem? And I think right. the answer is the natural world. The natural world is the thing that rules this poem. And his thought is what is what gives it direction. His thought is what gives it a deeper, more profound meaning. Uh -huh. But he, his meaning is just a stream in this in this long, extended natural metaphor. So I think you have to say that it's the natural world that is the din that's drowning out everything else. Okay. Okay. Um, this one. I wanted to say a similar. Sorry. I just wanted to say a similar thing. Okay. So, um, so for you, this, for the two of you, the sky is definitely wider than the brain. I mean that we we could we could ask if that uh, just just making that distinction in this poem in this poem yeah yeah no I don't mean in reality um, <laughs> I mean in this poem yeah Rachel I don't know if I'm thinking the same thing I feel like I'm not um, but I sort of read it that the brain is the making space for the universe kind of I don't know like because the universe is so dominant it's not that the universe is taking over the mind but it's more that the mind is letting in the universe uh -huh. does that make any sense yes yeah okay. yeah it totally it makes sense see you're talking about what's in your head <laughs> yeah no but uh, i don't know if that's an agreement or not with what he was saying i feel like it's not he shelly or he ben ben yeah ben you remembered his name um you knew him so well that you could just refer to him as he um there's a story of the hasidim where um some rabbi comes comes to a friend's house where he's been invited for the Sabbath. Um, it's Friday. He knocks on the door. The friend says, who's there? He says, it is I. Terrible silence in the house. No motion, whatever. He keeps knocking. No motion. He knocks again, and finally just this tiny, frightened voice from the house. What do you want? He says, it's me, Rabbi Benyamin Ben Shlomo. And he says, oh, it's you. Oh, my God, I'm so, I'm so relieved. When you said it is I, I assumed it was the Holy One, blessed be he, the only person in the entire universe who is allowed to say it is I without identifying himself. Um, luckily, it's just Shabbat, and we'll just have our wine, and it's not 
the day of judgment. I'm glad. That's, what I think That's okay. That's okay. It was just an excuse to tell that little story. Um, anyone else? Someone else has handled. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I feel like if you look at the syntax though here, it seems like this this clause after this last dash is modifying the universe of things mm -hmm. rather than because because. Uh, he uses a number of dashes. Yeah. Now dark, now glittering, now reflecting, and then the where from secret spring is, is like a is like a its own mm -hmm. uh, lesser clause. Yeah. In another thought about the universe of things, so it seems like each time that he uses that dash or the comma dash, it's it's um, it's talking more about the universe rather than talking about um, yeah about the human thought. Yeah. So, yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I mean, I a way a way to clarify this would be to decide where to put parentheses. Right. Um, the rule of parentheses being that you can always skip them and still have meaning. Um, that is, it's, it's the, the, you shouldn't skip them, but the grammatical or syntactical rule of a parentheses is if you skip the thing in parentheses, it will still flow grammatically and roll its rapid waves grammatically. Um, and so what you would do is... Um, Where from secret springs. That, that could be all in parentheses. Oh, in parentheses, parentheses right. Yeah. Now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendor. Where from secret... Parentheses. At that place, where from secret springs, the source of human thought is tribute brings of waters, close paren, with a sound but half its own. Um, yeah. yeah, or it could be sort of the... the uh, NPR commentator commenting on your speech. So you would be saying, we've won Ohio, we are, our, our, our electoral prospects are now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendor. And then Bob Siegel says, yeah, that's where from Secret Springs, the source of human thought, it's tribute brings up waters. And you go on, with a sound, but half its own. Yeah. So the question is, where do you put those parentheses? Yeah, Gila. Um, I usually find it's a useful exercise with down and kind of rewrite it because the syntax yeah. can be so confusing like like where from secret springs the source of human thought its tribute brings if you like flip the order around of that it makes a lot more sense okay so if i'm like struggling to find the meaning in a poem i'll sit down and just like reword so flip it, it. And how does of, it like, go figure out how to make it make sense in like 21st century syntax and then go back to it in the original and like reread it and then it, it's a lot more all right, so do it. Do the flip. I mean, do it. Oh, do it for yeah. the whole, for which part? Well, just, the, just how would you rewrite that? Just that part. Just that part? Yeah. Um, after, okay, the, the tribute of waters brings the source of human thought from secret springs. Um, no, because the springs are of the waters. Yeah. And so the, the um, wait a second, the source of human thought I think it is brings its tribute of waters. So what's oh so the everlasting universe of things um, brings the source of human thought from secret springs of waters. Well, I think it's the source is it, it's 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 a little bit confusing because it's sources aren't brought sources are where things come from, but the source stays at the source. Um, so it, we're talking about the source of a river. Um, you know, the Hudson's source is, is a little bit north of Albany. Um, the Charles's source is God knows where, um, in Needham or something. Um, toxic wasteland. Is it a toxic wasteland, the source of? 
the Charles? It was. Oh. You couldn't swim in it back in the day. <sighs> oh. Probably still shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, where should you swim, really? A friend of mine, a biologist friend of mine, had a colleague who was working on um, the effect of pesticides, um, corn pesticides, on um, rats. And um, so when he did, he, he had to do this, um, it, this is in California, so it's basically what runoff does to us. And so what he did was he said, well, I'm going to have this, you know, one one-thousandth of one percent solution of this pesticide in otherwise distilled water, um, which I'm going to feed to rats and see what it does to them. And um, when you do anything like that, you have to say what you're going to do. One of the questions you have to answer is, what are you going to do with this solution after you're done with it? Um, and so how are you going to get rid of it? Um, so the National Science Foundation wanted to know how he was going to get rid of it. And he said, I'm going to drink it. And the NSF said, you're going to drink it? And he said, yeah, it's a lot purer than tap water. Uh, um, it's got a lot less pesticide in it than tap water. Um, so yeah. Um, I know, it's kind of disturbing, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh -huh. And that makes it kind of more surprising because the beginning of the everlasting universe is being so, so um, sort of steadfast, unchangeable, sort of grand. And then it's saying, well, it only, it only, it kind of borrows some of that splendor. Uh huh. And you kind of take away from that and give it to the mind. Uh huh. Um, and suddenly. Suddenly, the everlasting universe is this feeble little brook, and it's only made um, wild and wonderful by the, by the mind. Yeah. All right, so basically, what the first stanza has done so far is it's raised a question. It's the same question that Humpty Dumpty raises in Through the Looking Glass, which is what? Some of you are smiling. Do you remember? Alice says, can you make a word mean whatever you want it to mean? And what does Humpty Dumpty reply? Alice says, the question is, can you make a word mean whatever you want it to mean? And Humpty Dumpty replies, the question is, anyone remember? Can you? Which is to be master, that is all. Um, are your words going to be the masters of you, or are you going to be the masters of the meaning of your words? So here the question in this poem. Um, you know, it's not explicit yet. So far, we've been trying to puzzle out something um, that we may not think we're supposed to puzzle out. That is to say, a whole lot of po reading poetry is puzzling something out so that you then understand it, and the next time you read it, it's not a puzzle. But sometimes reading poetry is about the very fact that poetry is a puzzle. Um, we may look at, I'm still deciding what we'll do next week, because we'll, of course, finish Mont Blanc before then. Um, but we may look at a poem by Merrill called Lost in Translation, which is about putting a jigsaw puzzle together. Um, and um, so the question about puzzling out what a poem means can sometimes be the thing that the poem wants you to do. Poems are sometimes like riddles, where the puzzle is part of the point, and they're sometimes not, where we may have to solve the puzzle, but once we solve it, we've solved it. Um, it may take some work, but once the work is done, then we own the poem. 
Um, but in other cases, it may be that the fact that it's a puzzle is, in, is an important one. So far, we've been puzzling out what the first stanza means, but we don't know whether that puzzle is meant to be a puzzle or not. Do you see the distinction between them? In, in a station at the metro, the title tells you it's not meant to be a puzzle. The apparition of these faces in a crowd petals on a wet black bow. The fact that it's called in a station at the metro is Ezra Pound saying, no puzzle here. This poem is about a station at the metro. And it looks like petals on a wet black bow. But the way I presented it was without the title. So it's a puzzle without the title. But Pound didn't want it to be a puzzle. Um, it's useful to see what happens if you don't have the title. But it's not a puzzle in the original. The question is, is this supposed to be a puzzle or not? Now I'm going to say, pure and simple, it is. And we're about to find that out at the beginning of stanza two. Um, but the puzzle then is going to be a puzzle um, in which Shelley is puzzled, in which Shelley says we are all puzzled about which is to be master, the mind or the universe of things. So here he is, Ben has pointed out, at this unbelievably fantastic site in the natural world, the most fantastic site that almost anyone in England has ever seen at the time, um, the site that people started making the grand tour to see, that is, towards the end of the 18th century, became the right thing to do for people who could afford it to go cross the Alps to go down, to go to France, and then to go southward in France, and to go to Italy, and really to see the Alps when they did that. And the most important thing they could see was Mont Blanc, because that was an experience you had to have. So here's the most impressive natural site in the accessible world for people like Shelley or Byron or Wordsworth. Wordsworth, in his poem The Prelude, talks about crossing the Alps without knowing it and finding out the next day that they'd cross the Alps, and he said, oh my god, that was it? I know what you were saying. You were saying, that's it, baby. No, you don't know what I'm referring to? Flight of the Concords? Really? Yeah. I Business time? You got it. OK. Just, you, if they you don't know. They Brandeis Cares last year. They were here? No, no, no. Oh. They, someone did Business Time at Brandeis Cares oh, all right. last year. So if you don't know what Business Time is, look it up on YouTube. Do you guys really not know? I, I know, I just get it from that small part. Yeah, it's hard to believe. You I said, believe I need a little bit of... Yeah, I know what you're saying. Accent. And then you say, is that it? I know what you're saying, baby. You, you're saying, oh, yeah, oh, that's, yeah, it. that's it. Um, which is not what she's saying. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> do, you know the, do you know the one where he's freestyling? Um, yeah, he, he starts freestyling and... He's just totally baffled. He says, okay, now I'm going to freestyle, and he's looking around. Who was it that had the oh, thing yeah. that, that said they, they crossed the Alps and then said, oh, was that it? Was that Wordsworth? Wordsworth, Was yeah. that possibly a commentary on this poem, saying? No, no, the Wordsworth, is fir Wordsworth was first, but oh, hadn't right, right. published it. So Shelley didn't know about it. Um, so there it is. And then, so here's this natural world. And so think of stanza one, Mont Blanc, lines written in the veil of Chamonix. I look at this and 
I say, God, the everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. What am I? I'm very little. The source of human thought, its tribute brings of waters just like that. That sounds like it's on the Ben side of things. If you contextualize this as Shelley standing in front of this tremendous, overwhelming natural sight, something like he's never seen before, um, and then what's he going to say? I'm very little. This is the real thing. This sublime, fantastic experience. That's the real thing. But then we get, in a sense, the most important word of the poem, in another sense, not at all. In many other senses, not at all. But in one sense, the most important word of the poem. Thus. What does the word thus mean? Therefore. No, it doesn't. Well, I mean, in this way. In this way. It's a word of simile. So we tend to say the, the symptom of simile is the word like. Um, you know, the, the, my love is like a red, red rose. Um, the feeling of immortality in youth is like a 1965 Mustang. Those are all words of similes. Um, but thus is another one. Thus is, look at this. And now look at that and see how one is an analogy for the other. It's a word of parables. To what may the kingdom of heaven be compared? Well, to a mustard seed. Um, look at the one thing, and that will give you an analogy which will enable you to understand the other. Thus is a, an analogizing word, a word of simile. Gila. If we want to do the thing with the parentheses again, uh -huh. I would put... Thus, thou, ravine of Arv. Mm -hmm. Is that a concept, Arv? Yeah. Arv. So then you put the parentheses, and then at the end of line 19, of lightning through the tempest, thou dost lie. So it's right. thus, thou dost lie. Exactly. It's kind of confusing, though, because usually when thus is at the beginning of a sentence, it means therefore, if it's used like thus, like in this way, it's usually in the middle. But I think because it's the beginning of the stanza, you wouldn't have thus as a therefore, at the, you would have it at the end of the previous yeah. stanza. Yeah, yeah. OK, good. Um, so, but notice that's right, that, that remember we looked in Wordsworth at how words, at the intimations uttered, how Wordsworth is saying to the child, thou little child, thou eye among the blind, thou, um, thou um, that deaf and silent reads the eternal deep, haunted forever by the eternal mind. Mighty prophet, seer blessed on whom those truths do rest, that we are searching all our lives to find in darkness lost, the darkness of the grave. He's addressing the child for, what do we think, what do we say, 15 or 20 lines before he gets to the point. It's just, he says, thou little child, and then the point is going to be, why dost thou provoke with such earnest pains the years to bring the inevitable yoke? But before he can get there, it's as though the child arrests him, and he has to spend time looking at the child and thinking, that child is so close to the truths that we are toiling all our lives to find. We are the ones who are in darkness, lost the darkness of the grave. So he wants to say something, but he gets stuck on, in contemplation of the thing that he simply wants to be the subject of his sentence. It's a little bit like that Monty Python routine, um, a little bit, but, but, but usefully like the Monty Python routine. 
Um, you probably all know it. I hope you do. If you don't, you guys just have such a rich cultural experience ahead of you. Flight of the Concords, Mighty Monty Python, um, Fry and Laurie, if you don't know them. Philip Pullman. Philip Pullman, for sure. Um, and as long as I'm saying for sure, Frank Zappa. Um, <laughs> where two people are arguing, the woman asks, asks the man, um, so why'd you do that? And he says, well, I didn't expect the Spanish Inquisition. And do you know what happens next? No In bursts the Spanish Inquisition. And John Cleese says, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Our chief weapon is surprise, surprise and fear. And then he stops and he realizes that he's made an error there because that's not singular. So then he says, our two chief weapons are surprise and fear and a relentless will. Well, wait. Three of our chief weapons are surprise, fear, a relentless willingness to do what we want, and uh, and then he stops because now he's gotten to four, and finally it goes to chief among our weapons are. So it's it's actually about writing and revising, but he's doing it on the fly. But the point is he can't get past the subject. Um, he wants to say something about their weapons, but he then realizes that he just can't formulate it right. Um, the really deep version of that is when you want to say something about the universe, let's say, or about the human mind. And you simply just want to say, you know, the mind is blah, blah, blah. But then you find yourself having to say, well, the mind with its depths and its glories and its, or, you know, the universe is just empirical. Well, the universe with its mountains and its valleys and its towering Alps and he gets stuck. So notice what the word thus here, let's just look at um, um, the parentheses, or skip the parentheses between line 12 and line 19. What we get is, thus thou ravine of arv dost lie. Very simple. And so what he's saying is, here's the universe of things that flows through the mind you want an image of what happens? Look at the ravine of Arv. So just as in this mountain, there's a mountain and a river flowing through it, in the same way, there's the human mind and the river of the universe of things flowing through it. So the thus tells you something really important, that the subject of the poem is not Mont Blanc, but the human mind. And Mont Blanc is simply an analogy which helps you to understand the human mind, which would suggest that which is the master? The tenor of the vehicle, which is the master? Which is the real thing this poem is about? The mind. So thus tells you this is a poem about the human mind. Yeah, Gila. Just to play devil's advocate for a moment, couldn't you say that, you know, because the, the style of this poem is, is so, like, dense and the way he like gets sort of tripped up over the thing that he's trying to say. I mean, couldn't you say that that's actually a flaw in the poem, that it's like the result of like... It's not a bug, it's a feature. So what happens here is he says, look, it's the human mind. You, Ravina Varv, I don't really care about you. Um, here, look how I don't care. Thus thou, Ravina Varv, dark, deep ravine, I really don't care. Thou many-colored, many-voiced veil over whose pines and crags and cavern, not that I'm interested, 
and caverns sail fast cloud shadows and sunbeams. Awful scene where power in likeness of the Arv comes down from the ice gulfs that gird his secret throne. And now notice that we get another simile word, likeness. Power is taking the form of the Arv. But that's only the likeness. The Arv is the likeness of the power of this nature outside myself, bursting through these dark mountains like the flame, another simile, like the flame of lightning through the tempest. So suddenly we can see, no, there's a struggle here. He sees the mountain in stanza one, and he says, oh, good image for the mind, which is what I really care about. Then he looks at the mountain and he says, yeah, you're a good image for the mind, and I'm going to get past you in just a second, but first I have to be overwhelmed by you because I'm actually nothing compared to you. So there's a flip. Thus is saying, mind is master. But as soon as he tries to address the mountain and to say, I'm the master, the mountain takes over. And he can't even get out the next word after the thou for 15, for, for whatever, 10 lines. And then finally says, look, you're just an image. You're the analogy. Thou dost lie. You're just like this. And then what happens? No, the mountain takes over again. Thy giant brood of pines around thee clinging, children of elder time in whose devotion the chainless winds still come and ever came to drink their odors and their mighty swinging to hear an old and solemn harmony, thine earthly rainbows stretched across the sweep of the ethereal waterfall whose veil robes some unsculptured image, the strange sleep which when the voices of the desert fail wraps all in its own deep eternity, thy caverns echoing to the commotion, a loud, lone sound no other sound can tame, certainly not the sound of this poem. Thou art pervaded with that ceaseless motion, thou art the path of that unresting sound, dizzy ravine, and when I gaze on thee, I seem as in a trance sublime and strange to muse on my own separate fantasy, my own, my human mind, which passively now renders and receives fast influencings, holding an unremitting interchange with the clear universe of things around. We'll stop there, but notice that suddenly he says, I'm the one who I seem to be looking at my own mind when I look at you. But that's the analogy. Now the mind becomes an analogy for what's really going on in the world. I look at you and it kind of is like what's going on in my mind, but you're so tremendous that you overwhelm what's going on in my mind. So there's a, there's a struggle here between Shelley's desire to make this a poem about the structure of the mind and its relation to the universe, and the universe's resistance to that, which just makes the mind a small part of the universe. That's the struggle that will occur throughout the poem and that we'll, we'll look at tomorrow. While you were speaking, I believe I may have made a very important discovery about Ezra Pound's poem, In a Station at the Metro. Uh -huh. If you rearrange the letters in In a Station at the Metro in anagram form, you get a moon that is in a tree. So I think that's the real meaning of the poem. Uh, 